Are you ready for a ghostly good time? Today on the show, we dive into the world of The Frighteners, a film that masterfully blends the genres of comedy, horror, and drama, from its talented director Peter Jackson to lead actor Michael J. Fox, impressive visuals, and of course, Danny Elfman's haunting score. We're breaking down all the elements that make The Frighteners a must-see movie nearly 30 years later, so grab your popcorn, let's get started, and let's dive in today on Patio Commentary. Hi everyone, my name is Matt Jarbo. Welcome back to Patio Commentary. For this week, we're diving into a movie that I think is a bit more than just an underrated classic. Yeah, I'm talking about Peter Jackson's 1996 classic. I mean, if that's what you want to call it, I'm going to call it that. The Frighteners. The movie is one that uh, holds a very specific and sentimental place in my heart. So I'll, I'll tell you guys the story. Back when I was 14... I wanted to take a girl out on a date, but I wanted to impress her. So one night I'm telling my neighbor who happened to be an unemployed alcoholic that I wanted to take this girl on a date. And he was like, I'll tell you what, I'll go and be your chauffeur for the day. I'll pick you up. I'll pick her up. We'll go. We'll get lunch. We'll go to the mall. You guys can go see a movie and I will chauffeur you around in my Jaguar. And I'm like, hell yeah, dude, this makes me like the mother effing pimp. And I did. I we, we went, cleaned up the car, and he even wore a little chauffeur's hat, picked us up and everything else. And I said, hey, man, we're going to go see The Frighteners. That's, that's what she wants to go see. But the problem is that we're not 17 yet. This was 1996. I was only 14. And he goes, no worry. Got you. Got you covered. So on the way to go and get the girl, we stop by the movie theater. He goes over and he picks us up two tickets. And we go through the whole process. We end up getting to the theater and I'm sweating bullets at this point in time because he was just going to go wait in the parking lot. And I am pretty sure drink a few tall boys while he waited for us. And then uh, we get to the theater and I walk on in and I go up to the ticket taker and I hand him my tickets and I'm expecting him to be like, can I see your ID, please? And he didn't. And that was great because we walk on in, we go watch the movie. We absolutely love the movie drop her off, get a nice kiss on the cheek because that's how formal we were back in the 90s. And then the next day, I got other friends to go see the movie with me who were over the age of 17, and then we got busted and got kicked out. But you know what? I'd already seen it once. I saw it on a date, and you know, I was pretty good about that. And ever since then, I've watched this movie a number of times. But to get ready for this particular episode of the show, I actually checked out one that I had never seen before. The version of it that I had never seen was the director's cut with an additional 12 minutes of footage. And I'll tell you, as we get into the uh, the plot of the movie, I can understand why they cut it. But what I can understand why is nearly 30 years later, this movie has an R rating, but again, we'll dive into that. So for those of you who are new to Patio Commentary, who just happened to find it, I thank you for being here. If you are uh, you know, long-term listeners, again, thank you all for being here. This podcast is all about how a movie was made, my overall thoughts on it, and talking about its legacy. Movies are just such an important part of my life. And to a lot of people, that listen to my nightly talk show, Hollywood After Dark, and people I talk to about movies, we love them so much. And so this one is one that's always just kind of been there for me because it's a blend of horror and comedy in a way that feels almost like Sam Raimi without the Sam Raimi cinematography. Like Peter Jackson was really, really, really channeling that type of performance or that type of movie when he made this thing. And I think the great part about it is that this is what paved the way 
for what came five years later, the Lord of the Rings. It's so weird to think that Peter Jackson went from making The Frighteners and Dead Alive and Heavenly Creatures to all of a sudden taking us to Middle Earth for a number of years, as well as winning a number of awards and revolutionizing the visual effects industry. And this movie is kind of the impetus of that. There's like Weta, you know, worked on this movie. And while the while the effects are definitely dated, you know, the movie itself still vastly, vastly holds up and it feels uh, like such a, a just a, a fun throwback to what is almost like a bygone era. And even Michael J. Fox's last feature starring role because he had just developed Parkinson's around that time and he did not want to be apart from his family. And so he this was it for him. And I feel like this is a good movie to end his career on. That being said, I would have loved to have seen him in more things uh, after this. You know, he did do Spin City for television, which is a good show. But still, it was I would have loved to have seen more from Michael J. Fox. And let's just dive right on in. Now, remember, if you want to support the podcast, you can do so by heading over to youtube.com forward slash patio commentary and becoming a channel subscriber over there. Help us get to a thousand subs and 4,000 hours watch so we can monetize that or head over to patreon.com forward slash Matt Jarbo and then just support it that way. That's a great way to do it, too. But the best thing you can do is just tell your friends, uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you can. And follow me on Twitter uh, at Patio Commentary and let me know what movies you want me to talk about. Because again, this is all about talking about movies. So so let's dive into the synopsis of the film and in case you forgot or just want a quick refresher. Now, The Frighteners is a supernatural comedy horror film directed by Peter Jackson and co-written by his wife, Fran Walsh. The film stars Michael J. Fox as Frank Bannister, an ex-architect who develops the ability to see and communicate with the dead after a deadly car accident that took his wife's life, and he initially uses this ability to befriend ghosts and then have them haunt people around town, charging them fees for exercising the ghosts and, of course, earning him the term of being a con man. However, when a mass murderer's spirit appears to be attacking both the living and the dead, Frank must investigate the supernatural presence with an ensemble cast including Trini Alvarado, Peter Dobson, John Astin, D. Wallace Stone, Jeffrey Combs, Arlie Ermey, and Jake Busey. The Frighteners is a visually stunning and entertaining journey into the world of the supernatural. Yeah, I know it's a bit of a wordy synopsis, but it gives you a solid idea of what to expect in case you're just needing that that that, that little refresher. So let's talk about the writer and director. Obviously, Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh are a husband and wife writing and filmmaking duo from New Zealand. They are honestly best known for their work in the fantasy and horror genres with Jackson as a director and Fran Walsh as a co-writer and producer. They did originally rise to prominence with the 1994 film Heavenly Creatures, which was a critical success and earned them recognition in Hollywood. It was also about true crime, which played a pretty big role in The Frighteners, and we'll talk about that. So before this movie, Jackson had in fact established himself as a talented filmmaker in New Zealand with a strong interest in the horror genre. He had directed several low-budget films like Bad Taste, Meet the Feebles, and Dead Alive. However, it was Heavenly Creatures that marked the first major success and paved the way for his future projects, including The Frighteners. Fran, on the other hand, has worked alongside Jackson on many of his films, contributing to the writing and producing aspects of the project. She has a strong background in theater, and her writing style is known for its imaginative and often dark themes. Together, Jackson and Walsh form a very formidable team, and their work on The Frighteners showcases their unique vision and storytelling abilities. 
which I completely agree with that synopsis. The idea of this movie is so interesting. And I feel like when we talk about like ghost stories and horror stories and things like that, it oftentimes gets relatively overlooked because it, it is such a compelling idea about a guy who uses his psychic ability to con people into paying him exorbitant amounts of money for exercising their house. And he does this because he's an angry, bitter individual because his wife died. He blames himself for that. And this is what came as a result. And so then tying that into an overall murder mystery and tying it back into an old mass murder itself very much lends to the idea of just being this weird kind of mishmash movie that I don't, it didn't really wow uh, box offices at the time. And I think that that's a big problem. Uh, maybe if they would stop kicking out the young kids from trying to see it, they would have done better, but that's just my very subjective take on that. But it's one that I still very much love and I still very much like to dive into. So let's talk about here how it was made. So the Frighteners actually was a result of a collaboration between Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh, who came up with the idea for the film back in 1992 when they were in the script writing phase of their previous film, Heavenly Creatures. The husband and wife duo wrote a three-page film treatment and sent it to their talent agent in Hollywood. This treatment was then viewed by Robert Zemeckis, who initially saw it as a potential spinoff film for the television series Tales from the Crypt. Remember, at the time, Tales from the Crypt had spun off, or they were in the process of doing like Demon Knight and Bortello of Blood, and they had the very popular TV show. So tying it into that specific world would definitely be something that feels like it would fit into the realm of the idea of what The Frighteners is. But at the same time, it works well enough on its own. I've talked to some people in the process of kind of researching this movie that have told me that they would have preferred the idea of it being a spinoff of Tales from the Crypt. And I just wonder if that has a lot to do with the fact that that franchise has largely died in the last 30 years. And there's been a lot of talk about revival and there's been a lot of people who've been wanting it to happen. I think M. Night Shyamalan was somewhat involved in some talk of a revival here a while back. And, you know, it would be great to see it come back in some fashion. And so maybe by trying to will this movie into that particular, I don't want to say continuity, but franchise might in some way have granted that franchise a chance to live on to see another day, which would have been uh, pretty fantastic. Anyway, though, Zemeckis was so impressed with the script that he decided that it would be better directed by Peter Jackson, with Zemeckis serving as an executive producer and Universal Pictures footing the bill and distributing the movie. This marked a significant turning point for Jackson, who was relatively unknown at the time and had really only gotten popular with Heavenly Creatures, and he was now being given the opportunity to direct a major Hollywood production. Universal ultimately liked the idea, they came on in, they greenlit the film, and decided to give it a $26 million budget that they were going to use to film the movie in April of 1994. The studio also granted Jackson and Zemeckis total artistic control and final cut privilege. So that is something that they got in order to kind of make it a lower budget. And then they just needed to bring on a well-known actor to kind of bring people in the theater. So here's where they got Michael J. Fox, you know, because he was well-known. Beloved actor at the time. I mean, there's no person out there that didn't beloved the Back to the Future trilogy or Doc Hollywood or The Secret of My Success or even the people out there who disliked Alex P. Keaton from Family Ties. Uh, he was known, again, for his comedic timing, his comedic roles, and a lot of Frank Bannister needed that kind of 
quick comedic energy, even though it was being played by a person who was perpetually tortured by their own mistakes. But they still needed that quick, snappy performance that Michael J. Fox could bring to the character. Now, for the casting of FBI agent Milton Dammers, they got Jeffrey Combs. And Jeffrey Combs, if you don't know, was from the Reanimator uh, series, I believe. And Peter Jackson was a big, 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 big fan of his. In fact, they actually like reached out to him and got him uh, this, just to see if he was available. He absolutely was. So they ended up getting him on board and he just kind of jumped at the chance to be in a Peter Jackson movie. And what's really funny about FBI agent Dammers is I was watching it again and I was reminded of when I was seeing the movie originally and all the subsequent viewings. Jeffrey Combs is fantastic in the role. Like his eyes, if you notice, his pupils are dilated in every scene he is in. So he's he's jacked up. He is wired. And it just leads to his performance being so very direct and very intense and very zany, almost kind of like a cartoon character or something you might see in a an Acme comic is or a cartoon basically is kind of the vibe I got out of that. But at the same time, a lot of the vibe I got out of him in that role had a lot to do with like Sam Raimi. I kept seeing Bruce Campbell, like a way more cartoony version of Bruce Campbell. But I think at that time, back in 1996, when I saw the movie, I was a big fan of Briscoe County Jr. And I, I just I loved Bruce Campbell for what I had seen him in at the time. And so for me, I think I've always just kind of connected the two together. But that being said, he just brought this like this this energy to the role that I just really, really, really got a kick out of. And then even with Arlie Ermey, from what I was reading, Arlie Ermey was, I think, brought in to just be a consultant because they wanted to get a Marine drill instructor. And they ultimately just ended up casting him, you know, in his role from freaking, uh, you know, uh, Full Metal Jacket, which is so weird because looking back on it now. And I mean, of course, Arlie Ermey's been gone here for a couple of years and definitely rest in peace to that. I just felt like when I was watching this movie again. It was just like watching Full Metal Jacket. It, it just it just it vibed very, very, very well. Like, oh, this is what happened to him after he died, after Gomer Pyle got to him in that movie. And it just, but again, Arlie Ermey just brings this, like, this energy to every bit that he's in. And you can tell that he's trying to be hardcore without dropping any F-bombs. Because if I recall, this movie is still rated R, but it doesn't have any, 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 a lot of swearing, mostly just the word asshole. You know, but no F slurs, no, no F bombs and none of that stuff. So still, it's kind of odd that it ended up doing what it did on that particular front. But this is, I think, one of the reasons why the MPAA did what they did with this has a lot to do because of what the subject line of the movie was. As I mentioned before with Heavenly Creatures, that had a lot to do with, uh, you know, like a true crime murder sort of situation. And this movie, parts of this movie were heavily inspired by the real-life serial killer Charles Starkweather, who, in 1958, went on a nearly two-month killing spree where he took out 11 people. And, you know, Peter and Fran really wanted to bring that real-life horror element to the film, and so they used the story of Starkweather as, like, the perfect backdrop for the film's supernatural elements, because... They wanted to use a real-life serial killer as a way of adding authenticity to the story, and they also wanted to pay homage to the victims by telling their story in a unique and imaginative way. Which is true, but by having the killer be Johnny Bartlett, who just wanted to one-up Starkweather, 
and one up other serial killers. I mean, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that particular assessment about paying homage to the victims. I mean, that's just my take on it, at least. But I just enjoyed the fact that the movie had a whole segment that was dedicated to telling the story through, you know, very hyperbolic, hyper edited, made for television, like this is a true crime story sort of thing. And I just enjoy that because I, I do happen to enjoy informative murder porn. And that kind of documentary would be the kind of thing I clearly would have watched. Not even like back in the day, even like now, you know, and I still watch some of those over the top stories that you find uh, on like IDTV or YouTube and whatnot. Anyway, I, I like the Charles Sarkweather aspect to it because I think it just like it did add to the uh, to the Bartlett angle and it kind of gave him like this competition and the copycat style of that kind of stuff. We see this in ser serial killers. We see this with true crime where there are copycats, where there are people who do try to get themselves to the top of the leaderboard, if you will. I know I shouldn't gamify that kind of thing, but it is it is true in this particular case, at least for the story that they were trying to tell. So when it came to actually filming the movie that did take place entirely in New Zealand with shooting locations taking place primarily in Wellington, as well as a three week shoot in Littleton. Filming started on May 14th, 1995 and lasted until November 16th. And it was actually one of the longest shooting schedules ever approved by Universal Pictures. Going from May until November, that's a long time to film a movie like this, especially when you watch the movie and you start to see a lot of the locations are just kind of reused. Like when they're shooting, there's a scene like, you know, where Frank is driving in the car and he keeps going around these windy turns. And that obviously is meant to kind of symbolize what happened with his wife. They keep going back to Holloway Road and that's where his, the, his car wreck happened twice, all things considered. And then he ends up like, you know, he, he just kind of Tokyo drifts his way around the city. They just kind of reuse what feels like a lot of the same shots. Uh, his his house, some of the locations are very similar. So I don't quite know why it took five months to make that movie or six months to make that movie. But that particular six month experience is one of the reasons why Michael J. Fox stopped acting in feature films. He didn't want to be gone for six months at a time. And for that, I completely understand. So you know, there are some downsides with that, right? But anyway, some of the interior scenes were actually filmed at Camperdown Studios in Miramar. Uh, Peter Jackson's Weta Digital was responsible for creating all the visual effects, which were a combination of computer-generated imagery, prosthetic makeup, practical effects, with assistance from Weta Workshop. Despite the fact that Weta was relatively inexperienced with computer technology at the time, the visual effects in the film were incredibly complex. Richard Taylor, who was the visual effects supervisor, explained that the effects work on the movie was challenging due to a number of ghostly characters in the film that required more digital effect shots than almost any other film made up until that point in time, which feels so weird to read because you're just like, God, that seems like so standard by today's standards, so to speak. And of course, now we're talking about a movie that is, quite frankly, nearly 30 years old. So technology has just come so far. However, despite those challenges, the team at Weta was able to deliver pretty decent visual effects to help bring the Frighteners to life. The only issue really with the special effects that I have is with the carpets and the attack uh, in the house when like Bartlett's in the walls and everything else, like the walls are meant to come alive. I understand the limitations at the time. What still boggles my mind 
What really boggles my mind is the advancement in technology that led from this movie to the Fellowship of the Ring, especially the Battle for Helm's Deep and Two Towers in 2002, which, you know, like had like AI controlled battles that were happening based on the technology that they were using for that, that what had had pioneered at the time. And yet you look at the Frighteners and you're like 26 million versus like 100 million obviously is going to go a much longer way. I mean, there's no question about it, but still, it's just like, holy crap. Like that just goes to show you how fast time was was moving for for technological advancements. And now just think about where we are today. So when we get to the concept of the MPAA, this is where things got crazy. So the Frighteners was ultimately intended to be PG-13, hence the lack of swearing, right? But the Motion Picture Association of America had other plans and they felt that the movie was too intense and they gave it an R rating. Peter Jackson tried desperately, mind you, to omit graphic violence. He tried multiple cuts to try to kind of whittle it down. And the MPAA on their, you know, highfalutin hoity-toity horse still thought that the movie deserved an R rating. Despite Peter Jackson's efforts to omit graphic violence, the MPAA still believed that the film deserved an R rating and gave it such. Because, you know, the MPAA is puritanical and deserves to be abolished, in my opinion. But anyway, look, despite all of that, the movie was eventually released in 1,675 theaters on July 19th, 1996. And it was, it was, it was a box office disappointment, let's be fair. But at the time, it was pretty stacked. It was pretty, pretty stacked at the time. Independence Day had come out two weeks prior to this. And Independence Day was a massive, massive movie that was just like everyone was talking about Independence Day around that time. And I do think that Independence Day success, I think Kazam was out at the same time. A few other movies were out. And the fact that this was an R-rated summer release that largely excluded the ability for teens to go and see it, myself included, unless I had help from an alcoholic chauffeur, you know, that definitely was one of the things that like added to a problem on this one, right? And the movie itself did receive mixed reviews, and we'll talk more about that. And sadly, it didn't really perform the way that they wanted it to, and we'll talk more about that as we get uh, to those sections of the podcast. All right, so let's talk about the plot of the movie because I do feel that there is a lot there to discuss about this movie, even if I feel some of the storytelling elements jump around a little bit too much in a way that can be partially confusing to the audience on the first viewing. And like I said, I watched the director's cut of this. I had never seen it before. So the new scenes that I noticed really did kind of add to the overall lore. But that being said, I also feel like they made... They made Michael J. Fox's Frank Bannister a real dick in the beginning of the movie. Like, he's a real jerk. You don't like the guy at all. Like, there's nothing really to root for for him. You know, I think, if anything, you come into this movie going, oh, it's Michael J. Fox. He is Michael J. Fox. At no point am I not going to root for this guy. But, like, he really is just a jerk. He treats his clients like crap. He, you know, he he is clearly running a scam on them. Um, he is treats his friends like crap. The ghosts are talking about, like, organizing... Uh, a march of, you know, or organizing uh, a union strike within the household. In fact, like one of those lines of dialogue was brought up in the theatrical cut, but the origin of that was actually removed from the, uh, uh, was removed from it. So it was available in the director's cut. So now that provided more context, but I still felt that it was kind of weird. 
that you had these ghosts that were trying to like organize a union, you know, when they're trying to like, when they're spirits, it just, it's very odd. The, the fast paced world building that takes place in this movie, it's got a two hour runtime. It's pretty lean runtime, even with the extra 12 minutes added in. But what was really interesting for me was how the movie starts off and we have the ghost attack on Patricia Bradley, you know, D Wallace in the movie. And she is like, you know, being haunted by a spirit. And that's obviously meant to showcase like this is the bad guy of the movie and bad things are going to happen. But what was really crazy about that was when we meet Lucy Linsky, who goes up to the house and she gets the backstory a little bit about just who Patricia is, because Patricia's mom is like, you don't know who my daughter is. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to look it up, though. So she goes and she rents a video from the library, probably. That's a true crime story about the massacre at the uh, insane asylum between Patricia and her older orderly boyfriend, Johnny Bartlett, who was trying to compare you know, trying to one up Charles Starkweather on the killing spree. And so she, like to me, that was kind of funny because like, it's just, that's how they introduce you into this world. Like it says they introduce you to the killer. They introduce you to the backstory by introducing like an actual slaughter, you know, that was covered by a, a true crime documentary. It's just, I feel like it, because you guys got to remember in, in the nineties at the time, you know, we really like, Unsolved Mysteries was over with, I think, by that point in time, the the Robert Stack version of it. You had America's Most Wanted. There were other shows that were out there. Lifetime did a bunch of stuff. You know, you had Forensic Files, I think, around that time as well. But like, and then, of course, there were documentaries, but it's not as prevalent as it is today. Informative murder porn at the time was nowhere near as massive as it is now. So the fact that they were able to kind of, in some ways, like predict the obsession and the coverage of that, even though it, it's, I'm probably reading too much into it. I think it's pretty interesting. Like I said, the story of the movie, the concept of the world and everything else is super fascinating. And it's a lot of fun because this is where, you know, we understand that when we meet like Lucy, we meet Ray, their marriage is not very good. Ray is, uh, he's a dick. He loves Lucy, but I think he loves the idea of Lucy rather than Lucy herself. But then again, she's also career focused. She forgets their anniversary, which is uh, generally kind of subverting expectations, subverting tropes, if you will. And then he ends up dying before then. And what's so funny about that is there's this weird like jump cut that goes from the funeral where Frank, uh, you know, says, hey, Ray wants to say that he loves you to them going to the Excalibur restaurant and then having a date where he's interpreting, you know, kind of like. Demi Moore, Whoopi Goldberg, and Patrick Swayze and Ghost a couple years prior. And that whole thing just it's like a, it's like an instant jump cut. It just it feels really weird, but it just kind of you can tell that moves you right to the next scene. It's, it's it's just moving, I think, from act one to act two, I think. That's probably like the act break. So I thought that was kind of fascinating to see. And it doesn't really like it might be jarring for a hot second, but then you're pretty much right back into it because you know, Trini Alvarado and Michael J. Fox, they have good chemistry. And she is able to play up the scene very vulnerable. And he is, you know, trying to not give in to this, right? She clearly didn't really love her husband. She clearly was largely checked out, which is why she's kind of almost instantaneously taken with Frank. Frank has been a, a widower for five years. He has thrown most of his life away. This is the first woman who's ever really shown interest into him at that point in time. So he, of course, is in the same position of just trying to like, figure this thing out. And then you've got, you know, you've got Ray 
as like the third wheel, which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, but Ray kind of, you know, he he's a he's a jerk and everything, but you could tell he loved her because he still wants to be with her. He still wants to protect her. He still wants to look after her. But it really, after that scene, it was basically just like Lucy more or less was just like, yeah, Frank's kind of the guy I'm interested in. Um, I don't really care about Ray. And, and, and Ray, up until the very end, before he died again, it was was still looking after her. So I thought that was kind of funny. Not that I think that like Lucy was, you know, uh, not faithful to Ray or whatever, but like, you know, she had made a comment early on about like certain people ending up together when they probably shouldn't have. And, you know, clearly he didn't respect her for the financial issues, but she also, I think, you know, was, was more about her career rather than anything else. And I just found that to be kind of uh, very, very, very interesting. So, but during the process of all this, as they're trying to kind of come together and figure out just who this Grim Reaper is, Frank becomes the prime suspect. They bring in the FBI. This is uh, Agent Dahmers, uh, or Dammers. And what's funny is that Dammers is not the antagonist for Frank Bannister. He's actually the antagonist for Lucy. So it's like in the sub, in the concept of these movies, when you have like your primary antagonist and then you have your, your sub boss, so to speak, right? In this case, the primary antagonist is Bartlett versus Frank Bannister. And then you have Patricia Bradley thrown into the mix. But additionally, you've also got Dammers, which is the primary antagonist for Lucy. And that I thought was really fascinating. And I think the reason why they did that was because Dammers, I think, he, I think Dammers hates women for one. He's kind of makes, he can't have a woman yell at him. It just freaks him out. So he's kind of like drawn to her on that end and just wants to control her. But the dude is like completely insane. He spent all these years undercover with all these cults. He makes mentions of being in the Manson family and being a sex slave for like three years, infiltrating other fascist organizations and, you know, uh, having his body just be burned and disfigured. And it just, it just completely like eviscerated his mind, which is one of the reasons why he is such a, a great kind of over the top cartoony character. I will say though, like Chi McBride uh, as Cyrus, the ghost, John Aston as the judge, you know, I, I really enjoyed their characters. I thought that they were, that they were fun. I thought that they were definitely like a good addition as being like the sidekicks. And they really added a nice kind of levity to the world. And you know, when, when they ultimately die, uh, it is sad because they sacrifice themselves largely to protect their friend. And that, of course, speaks to like the power of friendship in the movie. I know it's kind of a weird thing, a weird way, to, weird way to kind of phrase it. But I kind of feel like that's the case. Like they, they really are looking at it from that perspective. One of the things I really do enjoy about the movie is that it does not downplay the fact that Michael J. Fox was in Back to the Future. What I mean by that is there's a scene where Dammers is going uh, to kill Michael J. Fox and Lucy takes him out with a uh, with a fire extinguisher by spraying him. And then Bannister runs over, kicks him and the gun, the revolver flies up and he catches it like that's a Marty McFly kind of move. The way that he's driving the old uh, car around the, the turns and he's like running over a fence. I mean, he ran over a fence and back to the future. He ran over a couple fences and back to the future. He ran over a couple fences here and just the general mannerism of Frank Bannister comes across like a very jaded, uh, you know, kind of um, amalgamation of Alex P. Keaton and also Marty McFly. Like the, the, you know, you could argue like the Reaganite version of, of Keaton uh, being there only in just kind of like, you know, the, the overachiever. Whereas you got kind of uh, the slacker version of Marty McFly 
it's a weird combination, but I think that's what they were going for. And in, in many ways, it, it kind of works as like a semi back to the future for it. And I'm kidding on that, but it just, you can tell that there's vibes there. And I think they chose to do that as a way to, to kind of, you know, tap into that audience. If you want my honest opinion, besides I was also reading that during the filming of the movie, Michael J. Fox kept flubbing his lines because he kept referring to John Aston as doc instead of judge. And so he kept screwing things up. And again, I just kind of feel like that that is part of the the core DNA. Never mind Robert Zemeckis having produced this movie and him having directed all three Back to the Futures. There was clearly a camaraderie that was there. And, and it may have been a subconscious performance, but I do believe that it's there. And I'm and I'm OK with that. I have no problem with that. I really, really, really like it. But, you know, as we get to like the end of the movie, and we start to uncover the plan that uh, Bartlett and Bradley have, and they just want to continue on their killing spree. Obviously it's up to Frank to kill Patricia Bradley by pulling her soul out of her body. And then, you know, riding that train to heaven to lure Bartlett away. So he doesn't kill Lucy. And this is like Frank's big sacrifice, which I thought was actually like, makes a lot of sense. Cause he wanted to die. Anyway, you could kind of tell that he wanted to die in the movie, he he hated his life. He felt guilty for the death of his wife. And you can tell he just was just kind of like kind of writing out the clock, so to speak. And so when he makes his sacrifice, he does it willingly in order to have the out of body experience to become the specter to then stop the bad guys. And then, of course, as they're going on up, uh, they, you know, get pulled back down by the demons and they go to hell and then he gets sent back to Earth and stuff. And then, of course, him and Lucy get together. They tear down the house. And then at the end, Lucy can now see the ghosts. And we find out exactly why uh, Patricia was able to bring back Johnny Bartlett. Now, this is this was the one thing I was waiting for. When I, when I talk about how this movie really kind of did weird ways of, of storytelling, I like they they didn't really explain everything all at once. In fact, when the sheriff explains that they found all these Ouija boards in Patricia Badley's house. And that's how they believe that's how she was communicating with Johnny Bartlett in order to allow him to be, to, to escape from hell. I'm assuming by getting his ashes after he was uh, cremated after his electrocution, then they were able to make that work. They, they kind of gloss over that a little bit. They just go, this is how it happened. And even, even Frank Bannister kind of acts as the audience at that particular point and just says, nice epilogue. Like that's it. Like no follow-up question, no follow-up question, no nothing else. Just like, okay, nice epilogue. Thanks. Thank you. Have a, have a good day, sir. You know, because the cop was like, well, hey, we could collaborate on a book on this. And it's just like, it's just, again, it's this weird, it's this, it's this weird way of kind of conveying the story. It it doesn't really matter. I just thought it was interesting and in how they did it. it. But again, it's one of those things that I just really, really, really enjoy but I can understand why some of the storytelling conventions that they use for this might have ended up being, I don't want to say problematic, but might have ended up being something that really just kind of uh, rubbed some critics the wrong way. OK, because let's talk about the critical reception. So it was mixed. It's the best way to describe it. It was it was mixed. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes gave it uh, a 67 percent based upon only 42 reviews. Uh, and said that it boasted top-notch special effects and exuberant direction from Peter Jackson. The Frighteners is visually striking, but tonally uneven. And again, when you have a horror 
comedy drama mix, more on the horror and comedy, it is going to come across as tonally uneven. It's very difficult for some directors to be able to kind of tackle that, which is one of the reasons why I kind of keep going back to that thought that he was very much trying to kind of emulate Sam Raimi at the time. And again, he'd only done a few movies. He had a style for like the, the horror comedy and everything else. I don't want to say he's ripping off Raimi, but it, it's very difficult to look at the Frighteners and then look at like Evil Dead 2 or even Evil Dead or Army of Darkness, uh, Darkman even, and go like, yeah, there were some clear elements here that they were pulling from. Uh, Cinema Score actually gave the film a B minus, which I can kind of see, but again, I vehemently disagree with. But uh, despite the critical reception, The Frighteners was praised for its impressive special effects uh, and the way that Peter Jackson did direct the movie. And again, both of those are like pretty fantastic. Some reviewers, though, going back to that tonal balance, felt that it wasn't quite right. Nevertheless, the film has developed a cult following in the years since its release, and it's now considered a classic, as it should be. I, I really, again, like this is one that my daughter really wanted to watch this movie with me tonight, and I'm just like, no, you're five. It's way too young. But I'm like, yeah, she could watch this at 10. That wouldn't be a problem. Wouldn't scare her that bad. You know, it's like it's really a PG-13 film. It really, really, really is. So let's dive into the box office here, because this, of course, is always the sad part about this thing. When we found out that the movie was released July 19th, 1996, it opened at number five, earning only five point six million during its opening weekend. Uh, the film was ultimately a box office disappointment due to competition from Independence Day. Uh, again, there was also the Atlanta Summer Olympics, which began on the same day as the release of this movie. Peter Jackson, Robert Zemeckis, they wanted to push the movie to October. They wanted to have it played during the horror season. Universal felt the movie was good enough that it would have performed well enough during that time frame. But ultimately, it just uh, didn't really live up to it. Peter Jackson has actually gone on to uh, comment that he felt that the uh, that he was disappointed by the film's release and by Universal's marketing campaign including a poster that didn't really tell you anything about the picture. It's the, it's the white one with like the demon face in it that just says the Frighteners. It's a cool teaser poster, but yeah, it doesn't tell you anything about the movie. He actually believes that that was the primary reason that the film was not a financial success. And ultimately, the movie only grossed a worldwide total of $29.3 million. But it's probably done pretty well on home video. In fact, it was first released on Laserdisc, in the fall of 1996 as a standard release with Dolby Surround on both digital and analog channels, which you probably don't care about, but that's, that's in my notes. Uh, in 1998, Universal Home Video released a special edition of The Frighteners as part of its signature selection series. The special edition included the first release of the 12-minute longer director's cut, along with several extras, and a making of uh, documentary that was four hours long which is actually uh, on the Blu-ray you can get now. The DVD release of The Frighteners in August 1998 did not include any special features. Like I said, all of that beforehand was all on the Laserdisc. For some reason, all on the Laserdisc. But in November of 2005, Universal Home Entertainment issued a double-sided director's cut DVD to coincide with the release of King Kong. This DVD featured the director's cuts of the 12-minute longer version, as well as that four-hour documentary, uh, both the theatrical cut and the director's cut were also made available on HD DVD in 2007 and on Blu-ray in 2011. 
I would love to find a copy of this on HD DVD just to have in my collection, just to have it. I mean, you, like when we go back and we talk about HD DVD versus Blu-ray and you look at this, how the studios broke it down during that time, Paramount, Universal, Warner Brothers were all HD DVD. Then you had, uh, you know, I think it was like Sony and Disney and Lionsgate uh, were all Blu-ray. And I forget where Fox was on that one. I want to say HD DVD, but ultimately Sony won out because of the PlayStation and uh, well, Disney. Disney, Disney, Disney. You know what? I mean, if if porn won the battle over VHS versus Betamax in the in the you know in the day, porn lost out on the HD DVD fight on this time around. It, that's a whole other subject of conversation as well. But that is out there. You can get the DVD and the Blu-ray. The Blu-ray, I think, had a re-release in 2013, but they haven't really done anything with it yet, and it hasn't been up-res to 4K. I can only hope that a 4K copy. Uh, comes out uh, sometime down the road because I would love to see it. That being said, let's talk about the legacy of the Frighteners. So it has since become a cult classic and is regarded as one of Peter Jackson's lesser known but still noteworthy works. Despite its initial underperformance at the box office, the film has developed a loyal following over the years, particularly due to its quirky blend of humor, horror, and special effects. The film was also notable for being one of Michael J. Fox's last leading roles and for being one of the first films to showcase the visual effects of Weta. The Frighteners has been recognized for its unique tone, imaginative visuals, and entertaining storyline, and it remains a beloved entry in the horror comedy genre. The film has been cited as an influence on later films, and its legacy continues to be remembered and celebrated by fans and filmmakers alike. And I agree. This is one that, you know, when I think about this movie, yeah, is it uneven? Sure. But it only reaffirms a couple things. One, I would love to see Peter Jackson kind of go back into the screwball horror comedy genre. You know, I mean, look, I love the Lord of the Rings movies. I love the Hobbit movies. I love King Kong. The Lovely Bones was fine. But then he went on to go do the documentaries and everything else. And I know that's where he's at right now. But I just think like going back into that world would be really cool for him to do, you know, to kind of go back to his roots, you know. But then again, with Warner Brothers gearing up to do more Lord of the Rings, I have a feeling Peter Jackson is once again heading back to Middle Earth. I just think that's going to happen, which is really, really, really unfortunate because something like this, while it doesn't need a sequel, obviously, they could they could do something within the world. The world was interesting enough to, to do a compelling follow-up story or a side story or something along those lines. Maybe one day we'll get that. Who knows? Maybe someday someone will be able to convince Peter Jackson and Robert Zemeckis to let them pick up the mantle again and run with it. But in the meantime... This movie exists, and I'm thankful for that. And I'm always thankful for you to listen to me talk about this movie for roughly like 40-some-odd minutes. So if you guys enjoyed Frighteners, let me know. You guys can find me at patiocommentary.com, uh, youtube.com forward slash patiocommentary, anchor.fm forward slash patiocommentary, anywhere you get your podcasts, really. Twitter, patiocommentary. You just Google it. You're going to find it. And I'll be back next week with another episode of the podcast. We're going to be diving into the mid-1980s horror comedy film waxworks which is a special sponsored episode and one that i'm excited to talk about so i'll see you guys then have yourself a great week thank you again for listening and peace out